Well, let's, uh, let's turn to uh, Exodus chapter 3. And as you are turning there, I pray um, that you will enjoy this study as much as I did uh, studying it. Father, thank you for this time to be in the Word. And thank you for our church family. Um, Lord, I praise you for what you're doing here. How you're growing us to love you more and more. How you're raising up men and women who are concerned with your glory and your truth. Uh, Lord, continue to use our church. May we be uh, very accessible to you, Lord. May you reach for us when there's something that needs to be done for your glory and for your good, Lord. And we pray that our church would be available for that. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that we can study it and know you better. This is the goal, Lord. We know it changes our life and motivates us and pushes us on when we know our great God. So we thank you for this great text, Lord. Now, Open our eyes to your truth. May we know you better after we study this. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 3, um, what a chapter. I was thinking much about this and shared with the staff a little bit uh, this week uh, when I returned that we study the Bible to know our great God and Savior. I think today's Christian culture, and it's probably been a problem in many of, uh, down through the epoch of time, but there's sometimes people say the Bible in order to, well, I just need some little, little push or something to make me feel better or something like that. It's, it, again, that, that is true. There are times we open our Bible and we see something that really encourages us. But truly to grow, to really have peace, to, to really have joy and sustaining joy within our life, we study the Bible to know God. And if that's not why you've been studying the Bible, I really want to encourage you to say, Lord, help me look at the scriptures to know you. Now, one of the ways that we know God is to study through biblical history. And when we study biblical history, we watch him fulfill his promises. That's what's so fun about teaching the Old Testament, isn't it? Going through these books, these Old Testament books, particularly the Pentateuch that we're in here, we're seeing the promises of God and we see the fulfillment of them, not only just in Exodus where he will bring out his people, but we see also the fulfillment of that in the New Testament as well. So as we study God, he's known through his self-revealed character. He reveals himself through his character, through the written word of God, and he even reveals himself through the prophecies of to come. And we'll even see that tonight. He's going to prophesy what he's going to do with this nation that is in captivity. But we study a book like Exodus to know and believe God more. That's my prayer. I prayed for you to that. I prayed myself for that prayer for myself today. God, as I study this text, I want to know you more. And I pray that happens to you as well. Now, we also learn about God as we watch Moses learn about God. Because we've got him right in the beginning of his ministry here tonight. And as he gets to know God, we'll get to know God and learn great things even as we study him. And once we know God, application comes. People talk about application all the time. And yes, you know I do application all through my sermons. But application is easy when you know God. Application is difficult when you don't know him. It is. Because you begin to reach and you don't know and you may change God, you may make him into some kind of God that you want him to be because you don't really know who he is and what his character is like. When you know the true God of the Bible, you can apply him. And so that's why we teach the deep truths of God's word. So ask God to show you his greatness tonight through this study, both as we study corporately and privately. Now look at Genesis chapter 46 with me. 
there's an important passage here I want to go back to, and I'll show you why as we read just a few verses here. Genesis chapter 46, 1 through 4. Jacob is now heading down to Egypt. He has learned his son is alive. They're gathering his stuff, and this is what the Bible says, chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel, that's Jacob, set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba. So he stops in Beersheba here. And he offers sacrifices to God of his father, Isaac. Now here's what's important, what I'm after. God spoke to Israel in a vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there, and I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Now, the reason that is a very significant passage, brothers and sisters, is that's the last time recorded that God has spoken to one of the forefathers. And now 400 years plus has passed, and he's about ready to talk again. And this time, he's going to talk to his servant, Moses. But in this last time, he made it very clear that he was going to go down to Egypt, but he was going to bring them back out. This is the character of God. He does not lie. He always tells the truth, and he always does what he says he's going to do. No matter how much time span gets away, here being 400 plus years, he always keeps his word. He is a God of perfection. And so he promises here. And so now he's silent. And as you turn back to our text here in chapter 3 of Exodus, after these 400 plus years um, in in this divine providence of, of divine prophecy that he was going to do this is now starting to come true. In his divine perfect providence, the time has come to rescue this people, these descendants of Jacob. And he has promised it, and it's going to happen. So God's, God signals this appointed time by appearing to a man he has chosen. He's chosen a man to lead his people out of slavery. We're going to talk about a lot of types through, through Exodus, right? You're already hearing some of it, right? He has a man who's going to lead his people out of slavery. Right? That's going to be Moses, but certainly there's a connection there as we see the type that connects to Jesus Christ. Now, God has long ago, when you start to look at this text, selected Moses to be his human agent of delivery. He wants to deliver these people. When we talk about the doctrine of salvation, if you translate the word, so tira, it, we can translate it deliver. So when we talk about salvation, we often say this, the doctrine of deliverance. So here, God providentially is preparing this man. He has a man set aside, a human agent, that he's going to use to deliver his people. And probably unknowing to Moses, God had been preparing him out here in the wilderness for these last 40 years. Now, for Moses, this is a huge turning point in his life. He's raised in Egypt, right? Born, hidden in the Nile, should have been murdered. That was what the Pharaoh said, kill all the babies, Sounds very familiar to today, right? Get rid, of, get rid of babies. We don't want that. But he is protected by the divine providence of God. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. Her mom has raised him and paid to raise him. And you remember that story? We were in that just a couple of weeks ago. Um, he's raised in the palace, given all the, the great blessings of being in the palace. But eventually he remembers his people. He remembers his God. He remembers his upbringing. And he wants to go back to them. And he is 
brokenhearted as he goes out there and sees his people in slavery. Remember, he kills an Egyptian soldier and buries him in the sand. And the next day he goes out and he tries to stop two Israelites from fighting. And they mock him and he flees to the wilderness. And that's where he's been for 40 years. He's been hanging out in the desert. He realized that he tried early to liberate his people through his own strength and he failed miserably. You ever try to do something on your own strength? (laughs) Man, how many of us have been there? We we know it's not going to work, but we try to sola bootstrap us ourselves up, try to pull ourselves up and accomplish something on our strength that we know only God can do. And there he finds himself now as a miserable failure out in the wilderness. But God's gracious to him. Remember last time we were in chapter 2, God gave him a helpmate. Um, He gave him a much-needed family out there. And more importantly, God made him a shepherd out there. Literally. Literally, he made him a shepherd out there. He came from a people that were shepherds, but probably Moses was never around livestock. He was raised in the Egyptian palace. They, they, livestock was unclean to them. That's why they had the Israelites raising theirs for them. He would have never been there. And so God sends him out into the wilderness to learn to be a shepherd. And what's interesting is he shepherds somebody else's flock. Ever thought about that? In fact, he's not the only one that did it. Jacob did it before him, right? Jacob shepherded Lebanon. Le- uh, yeah, his, his, his father-in-law's flocks as well. He just went blank on that for a minute. And I, and I think that's, that's so true of us. We, we pastors, elders here, we shepherd somebody else's flock. And the Lord's taken us to the wilderness a couple of times to get us ready for that. And was, so we see God at work preparing Moses for this job. And Moses doubtlessly thought that uh, this probably was his life. I got a good woman. I got a good family. I got a good job. I'm taking care of. I'm out in the good, clean air. I'm away from the pharaohs that want to kill me. Things are going well. And maybe, maybe he saw himself as a failure. Maybe he looked at it and said, man, I tried. I, I tried to liberate my people and it failed and all I got was a death sentence for it. But God was about to shatter that quiet life of his that he had out there in the wilderness with a miraculous calling. And soon the the past failures of Moses would be wiped away and Moses would become a man that God had intended him to be. But these were training years for 40 years. I love studying these books because great spans of time go by and you can stop and think about all that he learned in that. I mean, what'd you do the last 40 years? What if somebody wrote all that down? (laughs) So 40 years has gone by. He's got children He's got wife and family. He's now learned to shepherd flocks. He's learned to run flocks in the wilderness, which is very different than pasturing them. He's seasoned at what he has done. This once self-confident man now seems to be broken, and he lacks, as we'll see, he lacks assurance in himself. We're going to see that. He actually doubts God and questions him four different times, two in this passage, two in the next, um, that he's not the man for the job. And so he's a completely, completely different man. When he was in Egypt, he said, I'll, just, I'll, I'll, I'll kill this guy. I'll do whatever it takes to get my people free. And he failed. And now he lacks that confidence. But I think that's where God wants him. God has Moses right where he wants him. He's empty of himself. 
Spurgeon said this one time, a long time ago. He said this, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. Let me read that again to you. I want you to think about this. You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. We hold on to so many things. Our upbringings, our our biblical knowledge, we we hold on to so many things and and it, it it mars our vision of often what God wants us to do. And he will often take you and I to the woodshed, to the wilderness, to the desert, to get our attention, to train us. I, I, I literally was raised in the desert. <laughs> we, we were out there for a long time. That's where I learned about pastoring and caring for the flock. God literally took us out into the desert. And spiritually, too. And it was, it was probably the best times of our year. I, I wrote the other day, I think an Instagram showed a picture of me, and I said, this was the hardest time of our life, but, but wow, was it the best time. Because you grew and you trusted God and you didn't have two nickels to rub together and you needed his provision. And I think that's where Moses is as we look into this text. And I think here's some things we'll see. You're gonna see a God's unique calling on this human deliverer. Then we're gonna be reminded that God's watching and listening to his people, and he's coming. He's going to remind us of that. And then he's clearly going to define himself and who he is. This great statement in chapter 3, verse 14. And then he's a God who provides. He provides for slaves who have nothing. And we'll see that right at the end of the text. We'll get moving here. Number one, the deliverer is uniquely called. Look at verses one through six. Let me just read these and then we'll work our way down through them. Now Moses was pasturing the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flocks to the west side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this wonder, mar- marvelous sight, why this bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Well, again, we are reminded that Moses is a a human type. We're going to see him as a deliverer. There's a parallel with Jesus Christ there. He is not Christ. He's a sinner. He needed Christ's blood to wash back over him. And he's not to be worshipped, as so many people have done that. But he is a type. He's, He's sent by God to go deliver his people. He's chosen by God. He speaks for God and he delivers for God. So we see that type in there that reminds us of of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's the greater Moses. (laughs) He's greater than Moses in every aspect. But yet he is still a type. Notice in verse one, Moses um, outwardly seems to be content just pasturing his father's flock. There was times I, I remember writing and Knowing God had called me to ministry and we were struggling along with these infant churches and, and just couldn't put enough money together to feed ourselves at times. And, and, and yet there was a contentment living out there in the middle of nowhere and it was just an interesting lifestyle that we had. And yet here, this quiet, secluded life 
that he has is gets interrupted on this day. He's just out doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's pasturing his, his father-in-law's flocks, and all of a sudden there's this bush that won't burn up. And I think if you were there, you would go, I, I think I better go check that out. And that's exactly what happens. And here in the wilderness is, is just these grounds for lessons. Uh, it's a great place to learn when you're out there, right? When God sends us to the wilderness, even spiritually, it's time to listen. Notice it says he was in the west side of the wilderness. Somebody asked me about that not too long ago. He says, what does that mean? Well, most likely they had areas to divide it up among locals that were out there where they grazed their, their um, flocks and, and livestock so they didn't overgraze the land and they were able to spread out and have different people. They may have had to fight for those lands. But so he's on, it seems, to side the western side of whatever that great expanse of land he has because they're grazing the desert. You've got to keep those animals moving. There's, it's not like pasture grass is far and few between and they move them and so he's out there on this western side and he's near mount horeb which um this you probably put together mount sinai and mount horeb are the same the bible will enter uh inter- use those both names uh to describe the same mountain but moses is moses leads god's people right back here someday so this is going to be an important aspect uh, of ge- geographical place. We're going to look again at this because he's going to come back here. But notice 2 and 3, verses 2 and 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in his blazing fire from the middle of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was, uh, was burning, but it wasn't, gonna, it wasn't consumed. I, I think I love this scene because I can see Moses in this. He's doubtless had many campfires, you know, out in the wilderness as he's taking care of his father-in-law's um, flocks. Wood, if you know this area, if you've seen any pictures of this area, wood is far and few between. So as he grazed those livestock during the day, he would just collect sticks and, and uh, small logs as he would go because it wasn't like there was a ton of wood laying around. This is an arid, very arid place. And so I, I just can see this scene. He, he knows what a campfire looks like. And he's, he hears this fire, and it catches his eye, but this is no ordinary fire. The Bible says the angel of the Lord is present. It's present. And the resulting of this is that there's this bush, this frail bush, this wood of some sort, and it's not being consumed. It's miraculous. It's not natural. It's supernatural, something beyond what he can understand is going on here at this moment. And it's fascinating. And, and the Bible says the angel of the Lord here is there. And, and, and that's a great term. It refers to one whose presence is equivalent to God himself. So it certainly is most likely, and I think we know it to be, because the name he's going to give, it's God. And this is a theophany that um, God is uh, going to use to call Moses to himself. And he does this often, right? Sometimes he uses human theophanies. You get into the trees of Mamre, Mamre in Genesis 19. He looks like a human, but yet he knows everything. He knows the future. He knows all things going on. Um, he became a flame of fire um, in Judges chapter 13 to Gideon. Um, uh, so often we see these theophanies. But Moses is drawn to this flame like a moth, isn't he, in verse 3. So he makes his way over there. Uh, there was one verse that I, I, I've been trying to study the... the sermons of Moses in Deuteronomy while I'm watching his life develop, his ministry develop in Exodus. And I, I think this may be related. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, he, he's in the middle of a sermon and he says this, but the Lord has taken you out and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. 
So I, I think there's a connection here. Like this burning bush, the nation of Israel was, was burning up under persecution. They, you're going to see here where they call out in the intense, the intense slavery they are in. And yet God does not let them be consumed. So I think he's probably making the connection of the power of God, the supernatural power of God, that he himself is not consumed. He's in this unconsuming bush, but he does not let his people who go through the fire be consumed. I mean, we see that with Daniel's three friends, right? You, you've experienced intense trials. Maybe there's some of you that wish you, at times you're going through something so difficult, so personal, so hard, you, you, you don't want to live. And yet God takes you through it. And so I think there's a connection. I look forward to preaching his sermons as we get through uh, Deuteronomy. But notice verse 4 here. He says, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to him to look, God called him in the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So from the center of the burning bush, God calls out Moses by name. He doesn't say, hey, you. (laughs) He knows this guy. Because he knows all of his children. And he knows them from the foundation of the world. His elect are not strange to him. He knows this man. And there's a very personal relationship here already. God's people are known by their name. It's one of the most reassuring truths in biblical revelation that you study. That God knows his elect. I I hope you find tremendous assurance when you study that. And I know people get all mad when you start teaching about predestination and all that. I don't know why. It's so clear in the Bible. But man, is it reassuring. It it takes all the weight off of me trying to figure out, hey, God, can you notice me? (laughs) Oh, he knew you from the foundations of the world. And he knows you by name. And so it speaks to this intensely personal character that God has when he interacts with us. Hey, Moses. (laughs) Me? Yeah, there's no one else out here. Come over here. It also speaks to the character of God to reveal himself um, through his own names, right? Verse 2, he's called the angel of the Lord, referencing the presence of God. Verse 4, notice the word Lord there, capitalizes, reverence to Yahweh. Notice farther in verse 4, the word God is Elohim there. So what, what a piling up of deity in this short, this short passage here. So, so from this, the great, now this is how I explain this, the great present all-knowing, triune God is calling Moses. You put all those terms together. That's how I would explain that. The great, present, all-knowing, triune God, Elohim, that's used in his creation of plurality, right? Triune God gives a personal call to Moses. That's stunning. What does God have to do with us? Isn't that amazing? He would have a relationship with us and know our names. So Moses rightly responds, here I am, right? Now verse 5, it seems that Moses is approaching. Notice he seems to be approaching and he's commanded to stop. Now over and over in Exodus, we will see this as we go along, that God is not approached casually. I want you to follow with me on this. And even though God has called Moses there's no room to, for presumption here in this matter. He says, notice he says in verse 5, you're standing on holy ground. You're standing on holy ground. How do you approach God? And, 
And here, it's interesting, the word holy has not been used since Genesis chapter 2 when he speaks of the seventh day that it's to be kept holy. That word has not been used to all the way to Exodus chapter 3. And now all of a sudden, he uses this word holy that means set apart, absent of evil. This ground is holy, not because it's some kind of piece of ground that God marked out somewhere. It's holy because what? Because he's there. <laughs> you know, there's people, you can watch these stuff, there's videos out there, they're all looking for this piece of ground because they think it's some holy place. You know where the most holy place is? Right where you're sitting if you have God. <laughs> the Spirit of God lives within you. So take your shoes off. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing thought? And so we don't need to run out into the wilderness to try to find this spot. We have the God of creation, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who takes residence through his Spirit within us. But it's a holy place. And, and, it's not, and God is not to be just presumptuously come to, right? And even though God initiated the contact to, of Moses to come into this divine communication with him, God's coming, close, uh, God's coming close to Moses did not diminish his holiness, right? It, it showed the problem with Moses, but it didn't diminish his holiness. So Moses is told to take off his sandals. We see this in several places. Joshua and Joshua's 1, uh, 5.15 has to do the same thing. And you say, well, why take off the sandals? Well, sandals kept your feet away from the dirt, kept your feet away from uncleanness. If you're working with animals and you walk around barefooted, uh, I promise you, your feet won't be that clean. <laughs> and so it's, it's just a, it's a gesture of reverence, right, to the holiness of God. And let me just ask a question here. I wrote in my notes, has the church today lost its reverential respect on how we approach God? Hayward and Andrew and I were doing this texting thing back about some songs not too long ago, and we were talking about the songs where Jesus sounds more like your girlfriend than your God. And we were working our way through that and talking back and forth through that, and out of the conversation, just this reverence for God. You know, we, we want by good biblical instruction and, and biblical truth that we sing together to be a people that approach God rightly. And yet, now, let, now I want you to put this into perspective. God says that he is our father. He is our Abba father, right? Our, our daddy father. And so there's this personal, intimate, crawl up in my lap type of understanding. So there's the balance of that. And then there's this balance of this great, present, all-knowing, triune God who speaks creation into existence. He is not this God that you come up and say, well, I don't like your view of marriage. We're going to bring our own, and you're going to have to accept it, God. This demanding now of a God that people want to create. He is, he is to be approached with, with awe and reverence and worship. His name is not to be used in vain. <laughs> and yet it's just slandered in society, isn't it? How do we approach God, church? Do we come into this building and corporate worship together in awe of who he is? How long does it take you to start worshiping and as you sing before your mind clears of some of the trash that may be in that? Dads, particularly, are you working with your children on Saturday night and Sunday morning as they begin to come to church, helping them realize who we're going to worship together? 
who it is that we reverentially fear. Moms, Sunday morning pleasant at the home, or is it just a whirlwind? You know, it's things we got to think about, right? And it's not just that, not just Sundays, but, but how do we come to him? Are we an Instagram studier of the scriptures? Well, I got a verse because someone posted it. I have no idea what the context is, but it was good. It encouraged me. Well, I, those are good, but man, did you get into the word? And did you become awe of God after you studied for your five minutes or 10 minutes or your hour, or whatever you had in your personal time? He is not a God that is approached as though he needs us. We need him desperately. And we come in a reverential way to our God. Isn't it fun to think of him that way? It's contrary to what's going on out there right now. But I hope we're a church that studies God, knows him, and says, oh God, I want to get on my knees before you. And when I come into your presence, boy, I know what I see sometimes. I see my issues. And I think that's what happens with Moses here. Know your Bible, know your God. Look at verse 6. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And when Joseph heard this, he hid his face. For he was afraid to look at God. Once Moses properly approached God, he he conveyed to him who he was. This is who your forefathers worshipped. This announcement was amazing. What a revelation. This is the God of Moses' forefathers. These are the ones that he had known about, he had heard about. He knew uh, Genesis chapter 12, though it wasn't written yet. He'd heard about that God chose Abraham out of all the nations of the world, that he would make a great nation out of him, and a seed would come to him that would deliver them. He had known that prophecy. He had known the prophecy to Isaac and to Jacob. He knew the stories of Joseph, that when they were to leave, they were to take his bones to the promised land. These people knew that stuff. It was passed down. God says, here I am, right? He's come out of, raised out of Egypt where there's gods all over, frogs and pharaohs and all that are all gods. And here comes this God says, let me tell you who I am. And what does Moses do? He hides his face. See, I think godly fear grips him. He gets in the presence of the Almighty Man, have you been in the presence of the Almighty lately like this? Where you're reading your Bible and you're, or you're worshiping in a very biblical song and you just begin to sense his glory. It's amazing when that happens because you go, wow, God, you let me sing to you. You let me have a relationship with you. You put me in your family, not by my choice, but by yours. It's humbling. And, and I, I think it hits him. I think this is probably what hits him, several things. One, that it hits him. This is the covenant-giving God. This is not some Egyptian dead God out there. This is a covenant-giving God. This is the God that promised our forefathers. And, and when those forefathers died, I think what's hitting Moses right now is he's realizing the God of my forefathers, my forefathers died, but the God did not die. And this is a covenant-keeping God. To this great revelation, Moses hides his face. His godly fear grips him. And I think the gesture that he covers his face here is a deep sense of worship and probably humbling 
Because I think like us, when we get into the presence of God in the senses, we understand who he is and understand his character and his nature, you see your failures. And I can prove it to you. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah gets this great vision and, and, and gets drug into the view of heaven. And he sees angels crying out, holy, holy. And the train of God is filling the temple. And it's just a marvelous scene. And, scene. and what does he do? Jump up and yell, hey, I made it. No, he says, woe is me, for I am ruined. <laughs> he knows what he's doing, right? I'm in the presence of God and I'm a sinner. My lips are unclean. I come from unclean people. I'm never getting out of this. That's what happens when you see God and who he is. You don't go, well, God, I think you should change your view on marriage. <laughs> you, hit your, you hit the deck. John Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. See the difference? This is worship. This is, this is a man gripped by the glory of God. He's still a knucklehead, right? He's going to try to get out of this. Four times, we'll see, he's going to try to get out of this. But God has been preparing him, and he's going to win him over. And he's going to do exactly what God wanted him to do. Point one, and I'm in a lot of trouble. Um, Two, God has heard and seen his people, and he's coming. These next verses here, we first start to see this divine concern that Yahweh has. God has a divine concern for his people. That's really important to get. He is not some God out there that doesn't care what you're going through. He's watching, he's listening, and he's coming. And I love that about this point. So the Lord here, as we look at verse 7 through 9, follow me as I read this real quickly. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land and to a land flowing with milk and honey to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezerites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Well, I think the Lord is saying, look, I have not forgotten my people, Moses. I know what you tried to do. And I know how you failed. And I know you feel like, well, I'm just better off in the desert. But I'm not giving up. I got a plan. <laughs> and he's moving. God's moving. Look at this. I mean, I got this all learned in my Bible. If you want, you can do. But look at the strong verbs, verse 7. I surely have seen their affliction. I have given heed to their cry, for I am aware of their suffering. Verse 8, I have come down to deliver. I will bring them up. Verse 9, I've heard the cries of the sons of Israel has come to me. I have seen the oppressions. Now, those are strong, strong verbs. That is not a God that goes, well, you know, I hope they're doing okay down there. Maybe I should check on them and peek in and look on them. He knows all this. He's the all-knowing God. There's so many people that, uh, open theists and people like that, go, well, God really doesn't know what's happening. He has to kind of catch up with things that are going on. There's actually, that, gets, that, got, that is taught in our nation, called open theism and a few other terms that they try to mix in with it. 
And they use verses like this. Well, God comes down like, well, he doesn't know what he's doing. No, 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 no. No, he uses this all the time. He's very aware of this. And he's using tenses in these verbs that are very important, that he has always seen this. He knows what's going on. He exactly knows what's going on, and he's keeping record of it. That's the idea here. Strong words. In chapter 2, at the end uh, of chapter 2, it, it talked about the word that they cried out. And Where's Dan? Is he here tonight? Niski? He's not here. He came to me afterward and said, hey, the Hebrew word was, was of a bawling cow as they cried out. And I go, I know what that sounds like. <laughs> we stretched out many a calves and slit their ear and if they're boys, they get another job done to them. Um, and then we put a hot iron on them as they're stretched out. You've ever heard a calf ball? You're, you know, a lot of gals go, oh, he's good. You know, he'll be all right. We let him go and kick him in the butt and he runs back to mom. But they, they bawl. And I love that because I, I go, wow, I know that sound. And that's what they were doing. The nation had got to a point, God had brought them to a point where they are crying out for the God. Not a God, not, not something else to get them. They're crying out and God has heard them. So God sometimes, and, he, and I want you to understand this, sometimes he uses these type of experiences to train his children to trust him. And you go, I'm stretched out and I got an iron on me right now and I'm bawling. And you may know exactly what that feels like. And what are you going to do? Are you going to cry out and say, God, help me? See, I think he does this. He, he, he knows. He's not indifferent to your pain. He's not indifferent to your suffering. God knows. And I love this little section in the scripture because he is not an indifferent God. He is not a, a God that is not in tune to our human, even sinful and selfish problems that we go through. He knows about them. Will you go to him or will you just try to handle it yourself? In fact, God knows the effects of sin and how it wreaks havoc on our earthly lives. And, and the point why he knows it, because his son is actually going to take on flesh and he is going to suffer and have pain and, and God himself is going to impute our sins upon him as though he, he committed them and judged them accordingly. And so, brother and sister, he knows your pain and he's coming He's coming to help you. He's coming to take you to be with him someday to a place flowing with milk and honey to a new heavens and earth. He's coming to take you there someday. But he uses this training. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, he himself bore our sins on his body. He knows pain. He knows suffering. He knows rejection. His own people rejected him. He knows that. And he was made to be sin for us. But notice next, God's divine concern leads to divine action. It's interesting. The divine action is a divine rescue. It's salvation. It's freedom from slavery. Notice in verse 8, the Bible says God came, is coming down. This is his divine inter intervention here. He's coming. This is a term, we find it in uh, Tower of Babel. We found it in Sodom and Gomorrah. He comes down. He, he, he looks at what's happening. And then it says in verse 8, notice the word deliver. It literally, the Hebrew word means to snatch away. He's going to snatch you out of that. And that's what he's going to do with this massive group of people. Not just to anywhere is he going to snatch them away but look what it says to a spacious and fertile land that's what that flowing with milk and honey means i remember as a kid going man i can't quite get my mind around that <laughs> you know i've milked a cow i've you know seen honey what is this going to look like it means it's fertile and it's the most beautiful garden 
look, I mean, it's just giving you this unbelievable view of a place that is, is uh, a place you want to be. And not only is it fertile, but your enemies won't be there anymore. Isn't, isn't, can you see the parallel of what he's doing? When we start to think about this, and this, even the type here that he's talking about, that's, I mean, that's a picture of heaven, isn't it? Someday we're going to be in a place that has everything we can ever desire. Our God will be the center of that. He will be the light himself. There will not be any enemies of God or enemies of us. We will sup with him in the merit supper of the Lamb. We will be with him forever. And that's waiting for us. And he's going to come and get us. Answer to verse 9's oppression. And, and just real quick, I, I, I chased that word down because it was used twice in verse 9, so I wanted to look at that. The word oppression means to squeeze painfully. Ooh. Anybody been squeezed painfully in life? Well, that's what's happening to them. They're being squeezed painfully. So the answer to this is in verse 10. Notice he says, Therefore now, uh, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. This is the answer. Moses, I'm divinely commissioning you. You are going to be my instrument. I'm going to work through you. This is my answer to this difficult issue that's going on with my people. And though clearly deliverance is is only possible through the supernatural intervention and power of God, yet he always raises up someone to go do the work. He does that. I mean, just think for a moment, application-wise. God raised up someone to tell you about Jesus Christ. And you go, well, I don't know, it wasn't Moses. Yeah, it might have been your third grade Sunday school teacher who studied and prepared and loved God and gave up her own Sunday school class so she could be there to teach you or it was a vacation Bible school reader. Philip Johnson, not the Philip Johnson from MacArthur, but Philip Johnson who wrote the book Darwin on Trial just died two days ago. He was a lawyer, taught law in Berkeley, wrote, <laughs> wrote a book. His daughter came home from vacation Bible school and was sharing memory verses with him about God, he read those verses. This is a brilliant man, a professor in Berkeley, read those verses and said, I think I need to look into this. Began to read his Bible and got saved because his daughter went to vacation Bible school. Help out this summer. (laughs) This is what he does. He raises people up so other people get saved. He's raising Moses up to deliver his people. See, you think we want you to get involved with ministry just because we, you know, I don't want to do it? <laughs> we, want you to, we want you to be a part of this. We want you to sing in choirs. We want you to help with children. We want you to be involved in Harvest Fest. We want you to be involved in this because we can be the hand of God at times. And as unwilling as we may be, like Moses, he's trying to get out of this, and we're going to run out of time here, and we'll pick it up next week, but he becomes this arm of God in a sense. I just want to be a pinky. I'll go for a little toe. But to be used of God, isn't that an amazing thing? One of the things kept coming back to me as I was gone. Do you know I gone? You know, and I tried to stay disconnected because I got I to gotta get some rest so I can do this, okay? Because you know me, I'm all in. But here comes these messages of people who are serving one another, going through a difficult trial. I, I mean, just, I... I was so encouraged. I was telling Gina, man, they're serving. There's people stepping up. They're, it's amazing what's going on. And, and I'm not there. I'm not preaching any of the messages. I'm not doing any of the funerals. 
God is raising up people to care in these very difficult circumstances. Be the hand of God at times. Be available. Approach him right, reverently. Call him Abba Father, but approach him right and and say, God, use me. I want to be used of you. Verse 11, Moses says to God, who am I (laughs) that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Good question. (laughs) You may have that same question. (laughs) Oh, Scott, you don't know my past. Well, we got a murderer in the text. Anybody want to challenge that? Who am I, he says. I mean, when you look at this, there's considerably difficulties, right? You got this man who's murdered somebody who ran away. He's been running around in the wilderness for 40 years. God's now raising him up to carry out his will. Now, there could be some problems with that, right? <laughs> but Moses is quick to point this out. God, holy God, um, wait a minute, who am I? In fact, he keeps doing it. Verse 13, he has, the first one is verse 11. Verse 13 is his second objection. He says, then Moses said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your forefathers sent me. Now what if they say, what is his name? I mean, he's, now he's on to, okay, well, what, now what do I do? And he doesn't end there. Chapter four, we'll get to this in the coming weeks. Look at chapter four, verse one. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to me? What should I say then? He says, you know, you guys do this too. We say, hey, go sign up for this. You know, sign up for it. Well, I got this, I got this. Or, okay, how about here? Oh, I got and then eventually, God wears, down, wears you down and you go serve. But this is what he's doing. Look at verse 13. And this is probably the most, actually verse 10. Then, then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent. Oh, you've all used this one. DTP, oh, pastor, I gotta give a devotional? <laughs> You're kidding me. Well, you're all smiling at been in that class, haven't you? Neither recently nor in times past. I can't speak well now. I didn't speak in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servants. I can't even speak well now. He's using the whole past-present thing, right, with God. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Look, I'm not the right guy. I don't know how many times I told the Lord that years past. I kept telling him as riding along, you know, cowboying and trying to get a small church. I go, you got the wrong guy. Ask Gina. I couldn't read the Bible out loud if my life depended on when I started in ministry. I'm still dyslexic. You can see me flip things around. Watch, I see you smile at me and they're very gracious at times. I remember saying, God, you got the wrong guy. I'm happy on my horse out here. I got the wrong guy. And that's what he's doing. In verse 13 is an amazing because he eventually comes down to verse 13. He says, please, Lord, now send the message, the message, the message by whomever you please. Well, you think he's being gracious there? No, he's actually saying send somebody else because verse 14, God gets ticked off at him. So you're sitting here and going, okay, Scott, I see what you're going with this. God can use even me. So each problem Moses threw, God had an answer for it. But though it, is, it becomes evident that Moses just flat doesn't want to go, God is pushing him along. You're going to go. I have a plan. So it doesn't matter who you are or what your capabilities are. God can use you. God can use you. And Moses becomes such an amazing man. We're going to see it as we study him and his writings that God inspired that I'm going to encourage. Just wrapping up the last few verses here. Verse 12. Notice verse 12. 
He says, and, and, he, and he, God, says, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. <laughs> what great words. I will be with you. I remember so many times when I'm young in my ministry, I go, God, if you do not help me in the pulpit, I am going to die. I, I, I was so afraid, and it was such a difficult time to study and put things together and get my mind and mouth to work together and all of those things. You just, God, if you're not going to do this, if you're not going to go with me, we're not going at all. It's a great prayer. God, if you're not going with us, we're not going. And that's why you hear me say this a lot. Why don't we find out what God's doing and then we'll go join him? That's the way us scaredy cats do things. Because we go, I've been out there by myself too much. It's not good out in that desert. Let's find what God's doing and let's join him in what he's doing instead of telling God what we want to do all the time. And I think that's what ultimately God does here. See, the key to the situation is not who Moses is and what he can do. It's who's with Moses. So all your fear about whatever ministry that you think you probably should be involved in is, is you've got the wrong emphasis, right? You're putting it on yourself. God does great things through nobodies. We're a bunch of nobodies, aren't we? And look around the theological world and all these huge conferences, and I, I kind of like, I don't want any part of that. I want to be right here with God's people. It's nice being a nobody because he loves to use nobody. This is the ultimate nobody, Moses. He ran away. He's living in the wilderness. He's the ultimate nobody. The Lord changes our focus from self to God. I watched him do that in my own life. He does it in yours. From limited human abilities to divine potential. That's what God does. And that's why we boast in him. Notice that phrase, I am with you. It's repeated throughout the Old Testament. He tells Moses again later on in the writings. He tells Joshua this. He tells Gideon this. He tells David this. And he tells Jeremiah this, who doesn't have any converts. I am with you. And then into the New Testament, the Great Commission, right? Lo, I am with you, what? Always. Make disciples. Get in partners. Go to DTP. I'm with you. I know it seems overwhelming. I don't know how I'm going to affect this in my time, but I'm with you. I'll help you. That's what he does. We saw in Mark 10 here just not a couple Sundays ago when Mark 10 when the rich young ruler has left and Jesus is talking about how difficult it is for a rich man to come to Christ and the disciples say, well, how is anybody going to be saved? And he tells the disciples, says, with people it is impossible but not with God for all things are possible with God. As Paul's in Corinth, a very difficult ministry, Acts 18.10, God tells Paul, I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to do harm to you, and I have many people in this city. Great missions verse. So many missionaries have held to that verse in difficult times. I'm with you. I have many people here. Stay. Do the work of the ministry. Philippians chapter 4, the context is anxiety. And the Bible says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Wow, what a great reminder that Moses and what God has done. So in verse 12, God knows Moses' faith is weak and he needs a sign. And I don't think this is a sign that um, 
that Moses really wanted to hear because um, he's still got some objections to go. But God says, look, I'm going to exercise your faith. You're going to learn to walk by faith, not by sight, Moses. And you're going to come back here again. And I love verse 12 because uh, this is a sign. Um, I'm, I'm going to send you. That's this number one sign. And then I'm going to prove to you because what's going to happen is you're going to go and you're going to come right back here. So he tells them the whole story in one verse. You're going to go because I'm going to send you, and then you're going to end up right back here with all the people. He already tells them what's going to happen. And he's still scared to go. And God tells us in the word how, what's going to happen to us, and we're still scared to go. God is such a great God, isn't he? Notice you'll come right back here and you'll worship me. The same God who's appearing miraculously in the burning bush is guaranteeing the success of the ministry. I'm guaranteeing it. You'll be back here with my people. And the Israelites worship at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the worship could God deliver them and save them. And Moses, oh my goodness, Moses will have some tremendous experiences right here at this mount. As he's given tablets and, he, and he's struggling with a, a hard-hearted people. And he cries out in chapter 33, i got to see you, God. God puts his hand over him and passes by. But this is deliverance. And I, isn't this good? I mean, this is life, isn't it? You study Moses, you go, well, that's me. Hmm, that's me, that's me, that's me. Know God, you'll live for him. Want to live for God? Know him, study him. It'll change your life, amen? amen. Father, what a thank- we're so thankful as a group of people here tonight, your children, your church here gathered, that we could study you. Thank you for opening our eyes to it. Thank you for letting us approach you, Lord. Thank you for calling us and knowing us by name and giving us a relationship with you. Thank you for delivering us. Just like you delivered this nation out of Egypt, you delivered us out of slavery, the slavery of sin, a taskmaster named Satan who owned us and held us in captivity. You delivered us from that, Lord. So, Lord, we find ourselves so much in this this book of Exodus. But thank you for the historical record to remind us of these truths, Lord. We pray that we would trust you. We would trust the God of promises, the God of a covenant-keeping God. We would trust you, Lord. Lord, help us live for you today, tonight, tomorrow, and bring us back together to be encouraged again soon. Pray for Jim and Caroline Newhouser as they travel, Lord. We pray for a great conference as he encourages us in our relationships to live for you, Lord. Bless this weekend, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.